to what will be the final Insights discussion and podcast in its current iteration. For almost a year, David and I have been alternating hosting duties for these discussions. But as David has drawn back, has been drawn back into European service, he stood down as Director General of the IIEA in mid-January. This discussion was recorded before he departed a couple of weeks ago. David, this has not been a happy decade so far, but let's try to be optimistic about how some of the big challenges of the day will play out in the year ahead and beyond. Russia's ongoing attempt to take over Ukraine is both a human tragedy and a first-order European security crisis, but it hasn't gone well for the Putin regime. Could this be further evidence that war and invasion have become obsolete in the modern world with the costs far outweighing any gains? And perhaps on a less philosophical note, how would you compare the reaction of the rest of Europe to Russia's intervention in Ukraine last year compared to 2014? Well, I mean, I, I think the events uh, which have unfolded since the, the Russian decision to invade Ukraine on the 24th of February have been pretty horrific, uh, as you say, uh, uh, a human tragedy for, for the people of Ukraine, both in terms of loss of life, injury, destruction. Um, and we've seen a, a side to, to, to Russian aggression uh, in Ukraine, which we, we also witnessed in, in, in Syria and in, in, in Chechnya, which is this utter disregard basically for civilian lives uh, or for civilian infrastructure uh, and an attempt basically to sort of blast people into defeat. So it, it has been pretty horrific to, to watch. Um, but you're right, it hasn't gone well. Uh, it, it has gone very badly, frankly, and the, the, the Ukrainians have not only shown great resilience and courage, but also great military skill uh, in taking on what most of us thought would be a far superior armed force uh, from, from Russia, uh, and succeeded not only in pushing them back and, and uh, uh, blunting the, the, their invasion, but actually uh, driving them backwards. Uh, so we could hope that there would be a lesson there for aggressors, that uh, it doesn't always go your way, and that this is really uh, a, a, an instrument of, of much more limited use than people might have thought uh, you know, in the last century and, or in the, in the 19th century. So I would love to think that that's the conclusion that Russia uh, and others will draw from this. I'm, I'm not so sure, to be perfectly frank. Uh, I see little evidence that President Putin is, is backing down. There's talk of further mobilization, talk of a new offensive uh, in the spring when the weather gets a bit warmer. So I think, unfortunately, this war probably will continue to have surprises for us. Uh, and we cannot exclude some degree of escalation, including maybe the involvement of Belarus, uh, 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 or indeed uh, e even more aggressive Russian tactics than, than we've seen to date. So I think we have to be prepared for, for uh, this to, to get worse before it gets better. Uh, in terms of how uh, the Europeans have reacted, well, it's night and day between, between 2014 and the annexation of Crimea and the reaction to this war. Uh, to be honest, I, I think probably there was a lot a bit too much, I don't want to say complacency, but an underreaction to the annexation of Crimea. I remember at the time uh, I was uh, in the uh, External Action Service, I remember being a bit surprised that people were not more shocked at, at what Putin had done. It was the first uh, 
fully full on breach of the the Helsinki agreements uh, of the 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 not in, interfering with borders uh, and uh, uh, I think probably the the fact that our reaction then was so relatively mild we did put sanctions we did you know they were fairly tough but they were not uh, the, the 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 kind of sanctions that we're seeing now um, and we continue to do business with with Putin and Russia notably Nord Stream 2 for example and the energy side uh, in ways which may have encouraged Mr. Putin to think that he could get away with this kind of thing. Uh, I don't think anyone can draw that conclusion this time around. I think there's been a remarkably united European response. Uh, I know that you know some are critical of some of the things President Macron has said or Germany, but actually I, I think Macron has been, in my view, very, very sound on the issue. And I think Germany has come a very long way uh, in terms of changing its policies. Uh, including its its en energy dependence, uh, so I, I think the reaction has been uh, uh, really very very strong and very very unified. And what would you attribute that to? Uh, is it was it the brutality of the invasion, the sheer scale of the invasion? But as you note, it it really was night and day almost between between the the, the two. Uh, between yeah, the, no, it it, it it was. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I think it was the sheer shock of of. Uh, Russia declaring war on a neighboring country and invading. Um, I mean, you back in 2014, not a shot was really fired. Uh, uh, it was done, you know, through uh, this uh, sort of sham uh, re referendum, which we now, you know, wonder how, how, you know, whether it was even a majority actually voted uh, to join Russia. But it it all happened relatively uh, with, without too much blood being shed. There was, you know, even Ukraine did not suggest that it would use force uh, to resist the annexation. And I think people kind of thought, oh, well, yeah, okay, maybe this is not so dramatic. Uh, this time around, you could have no such illusion. Uh, I mean, from day one, uh, the tanks were rolling, uh, people were being killed, uh, towns were being destroyed. Uh, and I think everyone, I, I don't know what your reaction was, Dan, but I was deeply shocked to think that we could have this in 21st century Europe. I just it never occurred to me that we would see something like this. And I think this was the universal reaction. Uh, and that explains why, why it's been possible for the EU under, I must say, with very good leadership from the US to take such a strong response. Yeah, we'll certainly come back come back to the the uh, the U.S. involvement in, in a while. Uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, I remember being in 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 Ukraine in 2014, shortly afterwards, um, and and just being you know surprised by surprised shocked by by a, a country that was still on had a war going on on, on its territory, and uh, most of us in the rest of Europe sort of just walked on by. But uh, as you say, certainly this time. Uh, things very different. Perhaps it's to do with the growing influence of of the of the Central and Eastern European countries in in the um, within the EU. Although I, I don't think that's a you know, by any means an adequate explanation for 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 such a different uh, different response. Well, they they definitely have have stiffened the resolve of the rest of us, no doubt about it, because uh, they have they have you know lot of skin in this in this particular game uh, but I, I I think the the, the general reaction of, of ordinary people across Europe 
Uh, and if you look at the, the, the numbers in Dublin, in Ireland, for example, who support, strongly support uh, Ireland supporting Ukraine, I think this is replicated uh, across many countries. And even though people have been adversely affected by certain aspects of the, of the sanctions which we've imposed against the Russians, but which have also caused some difficulties for, for the Europeans, uh, there's still very strong political support, not only for maintaining those sanctions, but indeed for upping the ante and 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 tightening the screw. So, I think the the the, the extent of popular um, outrage at at what Russia has done is is what has largely driven driven this. Yeah, but it's been really, really striking, just not just elite level, but certainly at popular level, how how shocked just people who don't even pay that much attention to international affairs affairs were biased. And as you say, um, the scale of uh, the number of people seeking uh, seeking uh, refuge from the war in Ireland, uh, you know, 70,000 now, I think Ukrainians have yeah. come since the outbreak of the war, which, you know, is a massive number of, of, of people, particularly at a time when, when we have our own difficulties at home it, it, with regards housing. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's been an astonishing uh, European moment, I think, uh, uh, against against aggression. On the on the political and security front, Dan, uh, I we can try and take some comfort from the fact that Russia has not had its all had it all its own way in in this invasion. But I I think we have to be prepared still for some some difficult moments. Uh, on the economic front, more generally, however. Uh, uh, there are slightly more promising signs in in 2023, don't you think? Absolutely, and and you know, going back six months um, to mid 2022, it really looked as if Europe, in particular, because of its dependency on Russian energy and the scale of the 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 energy shock it was suffering, it looked as if we could be in for a really really deep recession. Now, as of early 2023, we're not out of the woods by any means, and, and you know the the energy and and the security situation could get much worse again. But it it brings home to me that geopolitical events usually have less impact on economies than than they might seem in 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 you know at first glance. If you, if we consider going back to the Iraq War, for example, in in 2000 in the early 2000s, it looked like that that would have multiple effects on on Western economies. But you know you can find absolutely no evidence at all that it had any effect whatsoever. Um, now clearly the the invasion of Ukraine has had a big has, has had a much bigger impact because it's exacerbated an already existing bad inflationary problem that we and indeed the rest of the world have had uh, post-pandemic. But it, it's been remarkable how resilient the European economy has been. And if you look at most things, you know, some of the most important things are clearly uh, employment and unemployment. Uh, unemployment in the Eurozone, uh, as, as at last count in November, was as low as, as it has ever been at 7%, and it continued to fall over the course of 2022. So this really is a remarkable outcome given the scale of the shock. Now, people will quickly say that, economic, that the labor market is a lagging indicator of the economy, and that's absolutely true, that it takes a bit of time for, for bad, uh, a slowdown in the economy to start feeding through into unemployment and, and less employment. Uh, but if we look at other things like industrial production or European exports, they really are um, per performing remarkably well. There's even been talk about deindustrialization of Europe uh, by, by some serious people. Yet, you know, you go and you look at the hard data on industrial output across Europe and it continued to grow last year. Um, so, you know, there really has been a remarkable degree of resilience in the Euro European economy. 
whether that is to do, to do with a structural change or whether it's to do with uh, taking the pandemic, uh, you know, in its stride, uh, it remains to be seen. But there's no doubt that the numbers at this point are showing remarkable resilience for the European economy and in, indeed for the Irish economy as, as well, even more than, than most others, I would say, at this point. Um, and the energy shock has been considerably less than than I mean you know we were all extremely worried in in, in mid December uh, as to how whether we could kind of get through the winter. Now we've been helped by a relatively mild winter, which of course has other consequences. I was in Switzerland uh, last week and there was hardly any snow, <laughs> and ski resorts were were, were struggling. Um, so I mean that takes us back to the whole climate change issue, but perhaps. Just for once, maybe a little bit of global warming has helped us, helped this this winter not be quite the energy catastrophe that we, we thought it might be at one point. And, and the fear that we would not just have very high energy prices, which of course we've had, but that we would simply have had not enough at particular moments in time and that there would have to be sort of rolling shutdowns of high energy, um, high energy using uh, industrial sectors, for example, um, which would have you know, had much bigger, a uh, bigger impact on the economies. But so far, there's, it looks as if storage capacity uh, is holding up, is, is very high. And as you say, because of a, a, an unusually mild winter, we, we haven't burned through it that much. Uh, and of course, one of the other reasons uh, we've been able to get through it is being the very rapid transition away from not only towards renewable energy, but also towards liquefied natural gas, um, some of which, a good deal of which, is coming from our closest uh, partner on the other side of the Atlantic, the United States. So maybe could I turn to you, David, and, and, and sort of coming back to security issues in Europe as well, but also as, as you know, somebody who spent five years representing the EU in, in, in Washington as, as a EU ambassador, um, how would you, first of all, assess how Europe and the US have come together on the invasion and just more generally the state of uh, transatlantic relations in terms of the new trade and technology council that's 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 been established uh, and the most sort of more regulatory issues around the um us subsidies for renewable energies for example and the disagreements we're having over those issues well i i, I think that you know the the really good news is that it was joe biden in the white house when this happened and not donald trump let's be very frank i mean i i i i think uh, when we look back uh, at this period, uh, the, the, the pivotal role that uh, President Biden played and his team uh, played in, in building uh, a coalition uh, uh, against Russia's invasion of Ukraine was absolutely remarkable. Um, and it was characterized, I must say, by a willingness to listen and to take into account the concern of allies. Uh, so America did a very good job in, in that regard. It has also, let us be very frank, this conflict has reinforced, you know, our dependency on, on the US from a security perspective. I mean, I, I, I think this is, this is one very, very big lesson which, you know, every country in Europe is taking from this, that the centrality uh, of, of NATO, of the Article 5 guarantee, of the leadership role of the United States, the military capabilities of the United States, it was US intelligence that predicted the invasion and by the way you know many people in Europe just didn't believe this was going to happen the Americans called it right the whole way uh you know from the moment they went public with this um uh back in 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 November of of in, in sort of October November of, of 2020 2022 
Um, so I, I, I think one of the things that comes out of this has been a very sobering experience for the Europeans about you know, how, how autonomous we can be in security. We, we, we need the United States. Now, the good news of that, therefore, is that President Biden is very committed. The, 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 the concerning news, of course, is there's, a, there's, a, there's an election in 2024, and we could have somebody different in the White House uh, from 2025 on. Uh, now, the other good news was that the midterms didn't go as well for the Republicans and for the sort of Trump-like Republican wing uh, as they might have expected. So uh, I think um, uh, President Biden and the Democrats are, are, are holding up well uh, in, in the highly polarized uh, domestic American situation. So I, I think uh, the, the, from a, a security and a, a political point of view, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has, has underscored, frankly, our strong dependence on the United States. It's also true that the Biden administration has pursued economic policies, which, you know, have been something of an extension of, of Trump's policies, whether that's the, the steel tariffs, whether that's uh, um, the general lack of enthusiasm for trade, for multilateral trade, no attempt to revive the, the WTO. And of course, culminating in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which, you know, unfortunately for Irish people is abbreviated to IRA, um, uh, which contains many measures which are deeply disturbing for, 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 for Europeans, in particular, uh, heavy subsidies of particularly electric vehicles, which will be exclusively reserved for American producers and American uh, uh, components. Uh, with a small exception for, for Canada and Mexico because they have a free trade deal. So, uh, and frankly, not much willingness on the part of the United States to uh, change things in order to take into account European concerns. There have been discussions in and around the Trade and Technology Council, um, but there is a, a, a lot of real concern in, in Europe um, and to your point about LNG, um, you also hear quite a lot of, of concern, and we, we heard some of this from the round table in, in one of our earlier discussions, um, that the, the overall context of, of the, the Russian war in Ukraine uh, is slightly to the United States economic benefit and, and to the detriment of the Europeans, particularly in terms of attractiveness and competitiveness, go, going to your point about resilience into the future. Now, some of this, I think, is a bit exaggerated, but it is true that the, the US response to concerns about the Inflation Reduction Act, which has kind of been to say, well, why don't you subsidize your own industry, um, is not exactly the response we would traditionally have expected from the United States. And let's put the shoe on the other foot and imagine that the Europeans had adopted something like this, right? Uh, as, as a first, as being the first movers, I think our American friends would have been deeply shocked and outraged that we would we would do this and, and, and perhaps say to them, well, you need to, why don't you do the same thing? So I think, I think we are at a delicate moment uh, uh, in the economic relationship. Uh, obviously, the Biden administration is looking very much to the domestic scene, and one can only understand that because I think from a European perspective, uh, an outcome of a further uh, four years of, 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 if not President Biden himself, I don't know who will be the candidate, uh, but of, of, of Democrat rather than Republican 
administration uh, is something we should probably be, be, be keen on. Uh, at the same time, uh, we have these economic tensions, which uh, uh, are, are real. Uh, I hope we can find, we can find ways forward. Um, but there is a little bit of tension between the uh, renewed dependence on the United States due to the security situation and uh, some greater divergence on the econ economic front than we've seen uh, for a while. But I, 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 I do think that's, there's a structural dimension to that, particularly with the pandemic, the war and the threat China poses. Uh, I, I do strongly get a sense that, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was free markets and we just keep markets open and continue to liberalize and get the best prices, greater, greatest efficiency on a global basis. But things have really changed now. I think the intellectual trend has sort of moved towards security as being at least as important as efficiency when it comes to globalization and trade. And on that basis, you know, the argument that we're deglobalizing, again, data just don't back that up so far, but certainly in terms of regionalization um, and becoming uh, more, you know, the strategic autonomy argument uh, that, that that big blocks would look to themselves uh, and prioritize their, their own uh, economic interests, even if that means uh, less efficient, less open markets over the longer term. I think that's absolutely right, and 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 you mentioned China, and I I should have because that was an omission from what I what I just said. Uh, we we need to understand the, the the concern about China, which is driving much of of American policy. Um, on the other hand, I and I I don't disagree with you about a, a degree of regionalization. Uh, however, I think one of the things that transatlanticists like myself and probably yourself had hoped for was to see the transatlantic economy as being an integrated component rather than the United States pursuing policies which seems to favor you know a US economy a European economy and then maybe a China or an Asia component uh, so i mean you 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 know better than most just how interdependent the transatlantic economy is do, do you think this is really in America's interest to to kind of start going it alone? Well, I suppose the perception of interest changes over time. And I definitely, as I said, I definitely see a change in, in, in prioritization in terms of countries are looking at not just best prices, maximum efficiency, but also considering that there can be a cutoff to supply, whether it's um, protective equipment and, and, and pharmaceuticals uh, or, or energy or even less less important things. Um, so, so that that's definitely a change. And I'd also say that the, the intellectual trend towards greater state interventionism generally um, is is really there, both at elite level. I know from the economics profession, it's much less fashionable now to be a free marketeer than it used to be, and much greater openness to to government interventions of various kinds. Um, and also at popular level, it would seem that you know the memories of not being able to get a telephone when there were telephone monopolies have, have sort of faded in time, and people seem to be more in favour of government interventions rather than uh, cutting taxes and, and, and letting uh, leaving well enough alone. So that there are those pre pretty strong trends there that I, I think will certainly play towards. Uh, regionalization, but it's not either or. Look, you know, it's not as though the the the, the U.S. And, and European economies are going to decouple. And again, you know, not to sound wildly overly optimistic today, but you know, coming and looking at the data, we see just an incredible uh, continued trade and investment 
uh, flows across the Atlantic both ways. Huge double-digit increases in, 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 in goods trade last year. Now, that was partly a bounce back from the pandemic. Um, but despite all of the things that have happened, including the last administration, when, you know, Donald Trump quite, you know, he wasn't wrong about everything, sort of wondered why American companies were making goods for American consumers on, in other countries and talked about getting those jobs coming back. You know, despite saying that, countries like Ireland have just continued to attract American investment and, and jobs are created by American companies. So despite all of the sort of those, those um, things, those headwinds that might lead to a reduction in integration across the, the Atlantic, you know, the data are still up to now, and of course things could change, but the data are still, you know, remarkably strong and and and, um, and growing, despite all of these headwinds. So, um, you know, th these are two sort of contrasted things that I'm, I'm often sort of torn between. That the the arguments seem to be pulling towards regionalization and, and less integration across the transatlantic, but the data are certainly not backing that up um, to date. So maybe to 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 move on from from you know, Europe and, and, and the US have moved slightly closer to home, uh, David, and, and, and perhaps inject a little bit of pessimism or maybe you're more optimistic. And certainly, as, as has been said recently, the mood music between the EU, Ireland on one hand, on the one hand, and uh, London on the other, in terms of resolving the uh, five year long um, problem over, over uh, the backstop pro now protocol, um, are you optimistic that that can be that can be resolved in the in the shorter term? People are talking about a, a deadline of April the twenty fifth anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I, I I am cautiously optimistic. I mean, I I I say that just looking at it from from the outside. I mean, the the negotiations I see um, between the EU, Mar Marasevkovic and uh, James Cleverly. Uh, are continuing. Um, I take a lot of comfort from the fact that people are talking less about it. There are fewer public utterances, uh, which I take as a, an indication that things are getting serious behind the scenes as they need to. Um, I also think that the mood music with this British government does seem to have changed. Now, that can switch at any moment, as we know. Um, but also against the background of what we've just been talking about, the war, the Russian war in Ukraine, the, 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 the transatlantic economy, uh, the global economy, uh, I think it may be that people in the UK in, 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 this, in the Sunak administration have reached the conclusion that a, a trade war with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol is not really what they need. Um, I also believe and I, I hope I'm not falsely optimistic in this, I do believe that the elements of a possible agreement are there uh, in terms of um, mitigating the impact of the protocol, uh, clever ways of uh, minimizing the extent of the checks and the, and the documentation needed. I, I think there's a huge willingness uh, on the EU side to, to work in that direction. Um, there will be some thorny issues in there. Um, the, the issue of the Court of Justice, which you know seems to have acquired a, a sort of theological status in London. Uh, the issue of state aids, 
is 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 and state aid control is also a, a, a tricky issue. So I, I don't underestimate the challenge that uh, Marusevkovich and James Cleverly face in trying to uh, chart a, a mutually acceptable way forward. But I I'm fairly convinced the elements are there. Now, will that solve the problem for the the loyalists and the DUP? That's if you like, that's almost a secondary issue, not not of secondary importance, but a sec another set of issues. Um, they too have gone a little bit quiet in the last in the last few weeks, perhaps also waiting to see what might emerge. It's clear that if there is a deal, it will not meet all of the boxes that the DUP says have to be ticked. That's clear. Now, will it tick sufficient boxes for them to say, well, it's not everything, but it's it's a victory and we we we, we can live with this? Only time will tell, frankly, only time will tell. Uh, uh, but I think that if they they want an off-ramp, uh, and there are differing views about whether they do, but if they want an off-ramp, I, I believe that an agreement between the British government and the the the, the EU uh, on a sort of, I don't know if I want to say protocol 2.0 or a sort of um, uh, protocol you know, a new package in and around the protocol, uh, I think would potentially uh, uh, open the way for uh, uh, an understanding between the, the parties in Northern Ireland to 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 bring back Stormont to to re-enter the executive uh, and to try to get back to some political political norma normalcy in, in in Northern Ireland. But you know, so I'm I'm slightly optimistic, but I'm I'm very aware of the, the the numerous pitfalls that 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 still still lie ahead of us. Yeah, well, look, I, I've always been um, a lot more pessimistic uh, around this issue uh, since since uh, the idea of taking Northern Ireland out of the UK market uh, was put first put on the table in late 2017, and and of course it was the only way to make sure that there will be absolutely no change to the functioning of the border on on the island of Ireland. But it, of course, meant that, you know, there's a binary element to this. You're, the border has to go somewhere. Does it go on the island of Ireland? If it doesn't, then it has to go into the Irish Sea. And from a unionist perspective, and, I, and you know, I would say it certainly struck me that the then leader of the unionist, the Ulster Unionist Party, in, in as soon as the... Uh, as soon as the backstop, as it, as it then became known, was proposed, was was out and writing in, in the London Guardian, just saying that no unionist could 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 accept the the idea of having laws made elsewhere being applied to Northern Ireland, but not to the not to the rest of uh, the rest of uh, uh, of the UK. So it's been perfectly certainly clear to me from a, from a, a wide unionist perspective that that the whole binary issue of which market Northern Ireland should be in was always going to be an issue. And, and if if London is, as the saying often goes, throws unionism under unionism under a bus, as, as Boris Johnson was was claimed to have done with the protocol, then it seems to me to be very difficult to see where where the devolved institutions can go and whether unionism can can engage in some way, certainly in the short term. So uh, I'm certainly uh, that on that one. I'm 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 deeply pessimistic. I'm afraid to say, um, but uh, as you say, there's, there's well, there are always reasons. And it's 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 not uh, fully knowable at this point, and and, and we shall see. No, and and I mean I. Just to be clear, I, I also agree with you. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the reason that unionists find the protocol deeply unpalatable. I, I, I perfectly get that. Um, and 
you know, it's 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 not surprising that um, they 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 find it. You know, this is an identity issue. Uh, they find any differentiation between uh, Northern Ireland and GB unacceptable. Having said that, when you look at it in practical terms, uh, you know, there are quite a lot of benefits for Northern Ireland out of this deal. I mean, uh, I can tell you there are quite a number of EU member states who feel the EU was too generous in agreeing basically to allow a, a, a part of the United Kingdom to fundamentally remain part of the single market uh, and to have a foot in, in, each, in each single market. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I think people in Northern Ireland would have to think long and hard uh, about whether they really want to jettison that. But I, 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 I absolutely uh, understand why unionists are very upset by this. And of course, it's the, as you say, it's the, the almost inevitable outcome uh, of the whole Brexit process uh, for which, you know, most unionists argued. <laughs> so, but I mean, it's, there's no point in, in, in indulging in schadenfreude and say, well, you know, you, you, you wanted this now, now, now you have to live with what you've got. I mean, the, the, the reality of the situation in Northern Ireland is we need to get the two, the two communities back working together uh, and building on, on, on the framework of, of, the, of the Good Friday Agreement. And, and that requires taking into account the, the sensitivities of unionism, which you, which you just articulated. Yeah, and I, I suppose the, one of the other reasons I was pessimistic from the beginning, and maybe I was proved wrong on this part, was that you know, in essence, there's no region, there's no country that has a region of its of its sovereign territory that is subject to the laws of another uh, of another entity, country, or block like the EU. So it always struck me that the British as a sort of G7 country ultimately wouldn't accept having such a, an unprecedented arrangement. Uh, over over its sovereign territory, and as as, as as I said, you know, clearly Boris Johnson agreed to the protocol. It's not a clear. It's not clear that he fully understood what he what he signed up to. But I, I do wonder if if you know that arrangement is actually sustainable. An internal border within a country, as you say, there's no doubt there are benefits for producers in Northern Ireland that if you want to export to both markets, you have an advantage. But from 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 a consumer perspective, having barriers to the most important source market for your goods is clearly a downside, and we've seen that with medicines and animal medicines and various other things. So it's 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 not the best of both worlds that it was often portrayed as, and I think that was a that was a failing in in nationalist Ireland to 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 borrow a term that there was there was too much sort of cheerleading for it and saying it was only a few checks and it was the best of both worlds. You know, it was the only way to keep no border on this island. But it clearly had economic, political, and, and one could argue constitutional implications for Northern Ireland, which if, if maybe they'd been more openly discussed at the time, we wouldn't have got into this sort of test of strength between the two communities in Northern Ireland that, that, that the whole thing has become, which is certainly not what a divided community like Northern Ireland needs. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right, though. I, I do think that in terms of the practical implementation, you can eliminate many of the of the problems, and and systematically they have been eliminated. You mentioned the medicines and so on. I mean, these problems have been solved. So I I, I think if if we had start out from the very beginning with a very pragmatic view of okay, let's take a list of the the, the problems and and go through them one by one and find solutions. I think actually uh, that could have been done much more quickly. 
Um, the British government, from a very early stage, pretty much decided it wasn't going to implement this uh, and engage in implementing it. So problems were left to fester. And I think to a certain extent, some elements of the Conservative Party were happy for those problems to fester uh, in order to uh, generate momentum to say, oh, we have to ditch the whole thing. So, you know, it's it, the, the, the history of this is has been very complex. But I, I continue to believe there is a way in which everyone can, can come out of this uh, with, with uh, the, their head held high. But, you know, I, I don't disagree that, you know, there's, there's substantive, substantive arguments which plead for a more pessimistic interpretation of how this might play out. Well, I, I think we, we've all agreed, as it's been said around the table at the Institute uh, many times over the years, that we probably spend most of our professional lives dealing with the consequences of Brexit is it's a process, not an event. And uh, uh, dealing with EU, U, U, UK relations and Ireland, US, UK relations uh, are made much more difficult by Britain being out of the uh, out of the EU. Um, but to finish on a, on, a, on a maybe more optimistic note, the polls in the UK are definitely shifting towards uh, towards viewing Brexit as a mistake. So so perhaps within our lifetimes, there, there may be another referendum and, and, and Britain will rejoin something I think that would be the interest of Ireland, Britain itself and, and, and wider Europe. Yeah, well, I, I I wouldn't hold my breath for 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 for, for uh, a second referendum anytime soon. But yes, I I, I think uh, the tide of public opinion in the UK is turning uh, against the the some of the consequences of Brexit. Um, I I I personally think that the Labour Party and Keir Starmer could be slightly more courageous in 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 articulating that and at least pleading for a, a much more constructive uh, engagement between the UK and, and the EU, uh, because part of the problem is the extremely hard Brexit uh, that the Johnson uh, government uh, pushed for uh, and obtained, uh, which really, you know, makes Brexit even more difficult than it, it, it otherwise needed to be. Uh, and I think there are ways in which um, Brexit could be considerably softened, which would not bring the UK back into the EU, but which would certainly make everyone's life much easier in Northern Ireland for, for, for Ireland, which suffers particularly from, from Brexit, but also uh, all the areas of security, uh, defence, uh, justice and home affairs, all the areas where uh, the, the EU and the UK would benefit from much closer cooperation, objectively, uh, uh, which are, for the moment, almost off limits for any kind of discussion. Well, uh, I think after, particularly after 2022, with three British prime ministers, none of us is going to go and make any big predictions for what happens with British politics, uh, even over the next next 12 months. But with that, David, uh, look, it's been a pleasure to work with you as Director General of, of the Institute for what was all too, too brief a period. Um, but uh, as I say, I think we all learned a lot from your your, your, your vast experience and uh, it, it was great working with you and uh, we're sorry to lose you, but we, we know that you've, uh, you've been drawn back into, into EU affairs and we wish you the very best of, of luck with that, that important endeavour. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. I mean, I particularly enjoyed uh, our, our two-handed insights work, Dan, but more generally, your contribution to the, to the Institute has been outstanding. Um, I, I leave, frankly, with a, with a heavy heart. Um, uh, John Lennon said that, you know, life is what happens to you when you're making other plans. Uh, I took the job as Director General with every intention of, of doing the three years, and then 
uh, I was called back to, to European Public Service with uh, an offer which was very difficult to refuse. Um, I, I take that responsibility uh, with, with, with great seriousness, but I, I will remain a huge fan of the Institute, which I think plays a hugely important role uh, in helping Ireland work through the implications for Ireland of the kind of issues we've just been talking about. The, the agenda ahead of the country is 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 daunting, um, yeah, both in, in domestic terms, I mean, just, you know, some of the, the, the housing, the healthcare issues, uh, but also Ireland's place in the EU, the relationship with the UK, uh, the debate about unification or not uh, at some point, uh, a changing EU, uh, uh, because if we move to enlargement with the numbers of countries that are currently being talked about, the EU is going to become a very different place. Uh, um, uh, uh, challenges on the transatlantic relationship, on the global agenda. So I think Ireland has a lot of homework to do to figure out how we position ourselves in relation to many of these challenging issues. And I would think that the, that the Institute is uniquely well-placed to help uh, um, nourish that that discussion uh, provide uh, people in ireland with the opportunity to hear from speakers and and thinkers from outside the country uh, on on trends and and new ideas uh, and and also be, be a place where irish people can come together and exchange views on these these challenges so uh, i will continue to be a great friend of the and fan of of the institute as i i always have been and i know it will continue to play the, the important role into the future that it, it has uh, in 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 the, the the last 20 30 years of its existence thank you david and the very best of luck <laughs>